Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, Ricky here. As a new initiative on this podcast, we're going to open up the vaults of the archive a couple of times a month to bring you an important episode that you may have missed. When thinking about which episode to start with, it was hard to pass up Helen Joyce as our first replay. Helen's appearance on this show back in December 2022 is without a doubt the most downloaded episode in our catalogue. Helen is one of the most articulate and well-thought-out commentators and writers on the transgender issue. If you're keen to learn what's really happening out there with regards to gender dysphoria, trans contagion, autogynophilia, the highly powerful and influential trans lobby, the origins of the term gender, or perhaps you just want to sharpen up your rhetorical skills around this topic, then this is the episode for you. As always, please share this podcast with your friends and family and follow us on social media and YouTube. And if you're feeling generous, you could leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. All reviews are very much appreciated. And now, here's our replay of Helen Joyce. There's this tendency, and I think it's a tendency that's greater in, you know, what are called weird countries, like, you know, white, educated, etc., etc. Those people, I think those people are very prone to thinking in this, in this, in this sort of babyish Cartesian dualist way that we are a meat sack that has a real person inside it. Like that we walk around like some sort of meat robot with a little homunculus behind our eyes. And that's the us. And then you could imagine body swapping then. So you can watch, you know, what was the one with Tom Hanks being a kid? Big. Um, you know, those movies. That that seems, that seems like a thing, doesn't it? Face off. I was going to say face off. Not a good one. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike and joining me is a man surrounded by women, Mr. Jonathan Astro. I am surrounded by women and much like you spending a lot of my time talking about trans women <laughs> yes think about true. that in fact don't think Weird. about it um just show me internet history and then i'll know everything i need to know all right <laughs> <laughs> people should be made to show their internet history I think. <laughs> they should they should that should be the first thing you do forget the you know, I don't know, the pronouns. It should be, show me your internet history. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> That'd be a way more interesting uh, discussion. But uh, not as interesting as today's discussion with the, uh, Helen Joyce, the, the foremost expert on, on uh, the trans issue. Delicious. Let's do it. Okay. Helen Joyce is a journalist, feminist campaigner and author. She has written extensively for The Economist, where she has held a variety of positions since 2005. She's currently on sabbatical from her duties there to work with a startup human rights organization called Sex Matters, which campaigns for clarity about the two sexes, male and female, in law and, and in life. Uh, she's here to talk uh, to us primarily about her best-selling book, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. Helen, welcome to The New Flash. Thank you for inviting me. Well, before we get into the content of your book, perhaps we could talk briefly about the people who don't want us to read the content of your book. Um, there was a report in The Telegraph about a talk you were going to give at Cambridge, which I believe is your old alma mater, I think, uh, uh, and some people objected to it. There's so much to this story. The sociology department sends out an email advertising the talk to all students, and then after getting heat, sends another email denouncing you. One of the masters at the college put up put um, this incredible statement in writing, which I am going to read now. It says, We do not condone or endorse views that Helen Joyce has expressed on transgender people, which we consider offensive, insulting, and hateful to members of our community who live and work here. I like that they're not going to condone or endorse you in that statement there. Um, um, and there was even, a, my favorite bit is there was a safe space set up in a tea room so students could presumably hug themselves or shake or whatever it is they've got to do. Helen, what is this madness? Well, what you have to understand about this event is that we put it on deliberately to get this reaction because we knew we would. So there's a free speech crisis on campus. And if you want to resolve a free speech crisis, you've got to go precisely where they want you not to speak and say precisely what they want you not to say. So we went to Keyes College. Um, the professor who invited me, he's a professor of philosophy who's a fellow at that college. And he's a free speech champion and has done a lot of work to stop Cambridge from becoming more censorious and, you know, rowing back from academic freedom. So he and I had talked about what we could do to try to push in the opposite direction. And he said, why don't I invite you to talk? 
And honestly, it's like you build an elephant trap and then the elephant sees the trap and just marches obediently towards it and just keeps falling in it over and over again. Like the reaction was so much more extreme than anything I could have imagined. So the letter that the master of the college sent out used the official email list of all the staff members, all the fellows at Keys and all the students but then said, we are not writing to you as the master and senior tutor of the college. We are writing to you as Pippa and Andrew. Uh-huh. I've been thinking about them ever since as two little glove puppets in a children's... <laughs> like and sooty. Babyish, just so babyish, you know, talking to students like they're toddlers, absolutely extraordinary. And then when there was pushback, because I know there was a lot of uh, old... Cambridge people, a lot of alumni wrote to them and said, like they CC'd me in or they forwarded me the emails saying, you know, this is disgraceful. I'm ashamed to be associated with the college. Like I, they, they just, they're just replying. They're, they seriously think I'm a terribly bad person. And they say they've read my book. They say they've looked at podcasts about me. They say that I'm hateful. I'm exclusionary. And you're just like, what do you think the more than half of your students who are women think when they hear an older woman just described as hateful for simply saying there are two sexes and sometimes that matters, particularly for women. That's the entire thesis. Well, I think I need to go to the tea room and have a bit of a shake and a cry. <laughs> <laughs> but but what I picked up in, in one of their missives was there's this woke jitsu move that I've seen them do now in these open letters. So once they go out, this is new. So the writers begrudgingly acknowledge free speech quite angrily too. Like that, like I feel a couple of years back, they didn't have to do that. This is new. So is this proof that the conversation is shifting very slowly? Yeah. Have you heard this thing? Ignore everything before the, but so if you read a statement and there's paragraphs of, you know, we are big champions of free speech, and then there's always a but. In their case, it was however, because they're posh. So they went, however, not her free speech. <laughs> and then they actually put out more responses. They they sent a letter out to all um, alumni of Keys because so many of them had written to them. And that was forwarded to me as well. And in it, they say, you know, we too have free speech. So this is casting what's called the heckler's veto so the heckler's veto was when you shout so loud that you can't be heard, that the person who's trying to speak can't be heard. Well, there were people who were shouting outside and there were points at which I couldn't be heard. And I'm not saying that was Pips and Andy doing that. But they tried to get people not to go. They cast me outside the protection of academia. They encouraged people. It's very Trumpian the way they talked. That this Trump thing of like, very fine people, you'll do the right thing. And I, you know, also I don't condone violence. Like speaking out of both sides of your mouth so they were encouraging the heckler's veto, and yet then they're casting it as free speech. How long do you think uh, status points will be awarded to staff and administrators taking positions against thinkers they don't agree with? So these things are highly institutional. People do what's available to them in, in the institutional space that's there. And what those people need is they need a strong institutional statement that rules certain reactions off the table. Because then they can turn around and they can say to the audience they're scared of, because I think this is fear, by the way. I think this is fear towards the students. Um, They can turn around to the students and say, sorry, Gov, can't do it. You know, I know she's an awful bigot. They can leave that bit out. But, you know, in silence, they can say, I know she's an awful bigot, but we've no choice. And so that's the reaction I think that's needed. I don't think we have to wait for everybody to be a good person and, you know, install utopia in every head. I think we need proper institutional rules. You know, Pippa wouldn't have said this if she was going to lose her job for saying it. And that is her job, actually, is to defend academic freedom. But at the moment, it's not interpreted that way. Her job is interpreted as being, you know, stroking the students' egos and telling them they're very wonderful people for being so social justice mm. Well, perhaps let's dive into the controversy here. Where does the word gender come from? And what's the difference between gender and sex? God, such a big question and such a difficult question because the word gender is so, is so overdetermined. It's so there's so many versions of it. I would say until relatively recently, if it was used outside grammar at all, like just you know the fact that some words in some languages are gendered, it was just used as a synonym for sex. And Americans in particular very much dislike saying the word sex, so they say gender when they mean sex because they don't want to sound like they're saying having sex. Very prudish Americans, and. Then it was sort of it was used in feminist theory, I would say, in the 60s and 70s in a quite productive way to describe the sort of the impositions that are put on people because of their sex. And I think, um, you know, there's a whole structure in society that places, you know, men as the human and women as the other, as in the famous uh, title of Simone de Beauvoir's book, you know, The Second Sex. 
And you could call that gender. You could call the expectations of people, which bite on both sexes, but bite more heavily on women. You could call that gender. And then maybe a wrong turn was taken by putting too much into gender and too little in sex. So quite a lot of feminists would say that being more interested in babies is a social expectation of women or being more violent is a social expectation of men. Well, I think that there's sound reasons for thinking that they're both evolved and they don't mean that men can't look after babies and they don't mean that men have to hit women, but they are evolved preferences. I don't think they're gender. I think they're kind of sex, but they got put in gender. And then, you know, they get sort of more and more detached from each other and sex becomes a less and less meaningful concept. And at the same time, we're all sitting at our computers. We're all, you know, moving over to knowledge jobs, fewer babies, babies coming much later. The pill comes along and you can sort of pretend that women are basically kind of men until they have a baby. And often that's at 35 now or never, at which point women realize quite abruptly that they're not just men, minus a few bits and adding on a few bits that actually their whole biology is different and that's going to have a big impact on their life course. And of course, women who've been hit or who have been abused or raped earlier than that, they know that already. But, you know, some elite women can make it to 35 and even beyond without actually noticing that there are really sex differences. And so those people are much more interested in gender than in sex, in the sort of the the signs whereby you indicate your sex. And somehow... I think somehow kind of because of queer theory and on campuses in America, especially in the 1990s, that became the real thing and sex became the unreal thing. And now we're meant to think that your gender identity is something that's in inwards to you. It's like a sexed soul. But the sex of your body mentioning that is is just irrelevant if you don't want it mentioned. I'm old enough that I wasn't educated like that, which is part of the reason that I'm a heretic. But anyone under about 30, certainly anyone under 25, is very uncomfortable stating the sex of somebody who doesn't want it mentioned. Ask them to say what sex Leah Thomas is or what sex Caitlyn Jenner is and they'll be very uncomfortable. Does does everyone have a gender identity? Because I, I don't think that I have one. I, I, I just feel like I am what I am. Is that is that a strange thing to feel? No, that's what most people feel. This is, by the way, described as cis privilege. So cis is non-trans, right? It sounds like a very cis-het answer. (laughs) Yes. I mean, there's these gotchas, like what would you, you know, somebody would say to me, what would you feel, you know, what would your gender identity be if you woke up tomorrow in a man's body? And there's so much to unpack in that question. You know, if somehow I could wake up tomorrow in a man's body, I'd be a man because that's what being a man means. But also, isn't it strange that we think that that's something that could even happen? (laughs) You know, I am every bit of me. There's this tendency, and I think it's a tendency that's greater in, you know, what are called weird countries, like, you know, white, educated, et cetera, et cetera, those people. I think those people are very prone to thinking in this in this, in this this sort of babyish Cartesian dualist way that we are a meat sack that has a real person inside it, like that we walk around like some sort of meat robot with a little homunculus behind our eyes, and that's the us. And then you could imagine body swapping then. So you can watch, you know, what was the one with Tom Hanks being a kid? Um, you know, those, those movies. That that seems that seems like a thing, doesn't it? Or face Off. I was going to say Face Off. Another good one. Yes, yeah, so there's quite a lot of plot and a lot, a, lot of, a lot of science fiction about this. It's obviously something we like thinking about. Silly. But if silly you can think like movies. That, sorry? Like silly, silly ideas, really. I mean, they're, they're lovely films, but when you bring them into, bring those ideas into the real world, it seems so embarrassing. I mean, they're they're fun. They're really nice, but they they obviously speak to something in our nature, whether it's our educated nature in the countries where we live or humanity generally. I mean, I, I think it, I'm inclined to think it may be humanity generally because we are strange animals with two big brains, and you know we're physically weak and we've got this enormous brain, and that's the thing about this species that we are like like the way that you know the elephant's trunk is its thing and the giraffe's neck is its thing. Our thing is this. And it uses 25% of all of the energy and it invents religion and it makes us think that people live after death and all of those things. I think that we think that we do have souls, whether we're religious or not. And so the idea that your soul can have a sex isn't that much of a stretch. And I mean, I'm, I'm the sort of atheist who believes that, you know, I'm radically just my body. You know, I was conceived, I was born, I live, I will die. And when I die, every bit of me dies. There's nothing left. But while I'm alive, me is all of this and we know that we think with our bodies now too like our memories are in our in our muscles not just in our brains this idea that you could take not the soul out or the brain out and put it into another body it's just false 
So I am this, and there's no sense in which I can be a man. There's there's no me that's a man. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so that was a sort of long way of saying I think it just makes radically no sense to ask what would you be if you were a man, but it feels like it makes sense. Yes. Uh, well, we've got our wish list of questions here, and this I need this. I've been desperate to ask you this one. 2022, well, almost 2023. What in heavens does the word queer mean? Pass. No bloody idea. I think it means interesting, yeah. uh, not normal. <laughs> um, you know, don't think that I'm going to be like my parents. Um, it's, it's what heterosexual people say to, to be interesting, right? You know what some people have started to say about the LGBTQIA++ thing, which is that everything after LGB, it's all straight. So it's straight but interesting, straight with blue hair, straight but might occasionally do a threesome, straight but won't do any of those things but would like you to think that they might. It's sort of like a heterosexual revenge on the LGB. I think it's a way of trying to get out of what are more and more painfully constrained notions of what you are if you're heterosexual. So, mm. you know, especially with young people, like 30% 30, 30 plus of American young people in elite colleges identify as LGBTQIA++. I mean, you know, only a few percent of people are gay or bisexual, by, you know, even by quite generous standards. So what are the rest of them? I think that they're, like, especially girls have tended to play around a bit with other girls at university. You know, it's gay till graduation. And so those people now say that they're gay or that they're queer. But also, you know, if you're straight now, you're meant to be a whole bunch of things. You're meant to be preppy or you're meant to be very sexualized. You're meant to be okay with the horrible porn, you know, your boyfriend's watching, that sort of thing. Easier to say you're queer and then you can just have a bit more license. And you're also freer to speak as well. You know, this whole thing of like, shut up and sit down if you're a white straight person, especially if you're a white straight man. You don't want to be a Karen. You don't want people to say, you know, any of your opinions are just not valid. So you say you're queer or you're non-binary and then suddenly you're allowed to speak again. Well, I'm interested to know what, what, what the scientific literature says about transgenderism. Is gender dysphoria still a term that's used? Is it a disorder? The term is still used, but the, um, the, there, there are two big guides to mental disorders, and it's kind of being deprecated in them both. Um, so they talk now about gender, what is it? Um, they talk now about gender variance, I think it is. Uh, and the idea is that, you know, we all have a gender identity and, you know, sometimes the little angels put a little blue gender identity and the little pink body on the assembly line that God is sending the souls down to earth in or something. I mean, they might as well write that because it's so unscientific. I mean, there are people who are deeply distressed with their sexed bodies. There's no denying that. But you have to ask yourself, why is someone distressed with their sexed body? I think that we're creating gender dysphoria in this culture. It, you know, if we had set out to make people gender dysphoric, we couldn't be doing better. So the rules have become much more rigid than they were when I was a child about what, how you're meant to behave, according to which sex you are, how you're meant to dress. They're very onerous. You know, young girls, unless they say they're queer, you know, you're into the whole hair extensions and nail extensions and, you know, lip, lip filler type territory, even quite young. And, you know, they, the porn is a big issue. Like, girls know what the boys around them are looking at and it's disgusting and they don't want to be any part of that. Um, so those girls are just primed to think like, I'm not one of those girls. I'm not a, I'm not a human spittoon. I'm not a, a sex doll. So you start to think about your body parts and your body in a different way. And it's a very dissociated way. And then you think about, you know, the pandemic and the lockdowns and everyone on screens and kids on social media and using avatars and games and not getting out into the nature and all of those things. We're dissociating from our body big time. And then on top of that, we're teaching children that people have gender identities and encouraging them to think, how do I fit? What's my gender identity? Am I really fully boy or girl? Where do I fit on these ridiculous spectra that they show kids? you know, with really masculine one side and really feminine the other side. And like, if you're not at that, then you're somehow non-binary or in between or something. You were actually encouraging gender dysphoria. So you asked what the evidence says. I mean, the evidence for what is definitely a mental disorder that is spread by social contagion is always going to be difficult to get because it'll depend on the society that you're in. So the model I'd give you is eating disorders. It has always been the case that the very, very, very occasional person will land on self-starvation as a way to express their misery. But there was an explosion of eating disorders that started in America in the 1980s. 
And it was very specific pattern, you know, girls who were already very thin, but felt they were still fat. And that spread through um, the media and through medical practice to other countries, like you can track it spread. So if you then say, you know, is our eating disorders real? Well, yes, they're real. They kill people. Um, what do we know about them? Well, what we know is that they're contagious and that they're shaped by what doctors say and what the media say. Um, how do we treat them? Well, yes, it's difficult to treat them, but wouldn't it be better not to give people them in the first place? So it's a bit like that. I mean, there certainly isn't anything like a gender identity. That's just a construct. It's literally no more meaningful or scientific than a soul. But there really are people who are very distressed being the sex they are. But lots of them now, when there only used to be a few, because we're making them distressed. Have you heard the term gender euphoria? Yeah. I, I, I was uh, a colleague was in a writer's room recently on a, a production and you know it had a trans character in it and the, the 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 consultants in the room the trans consultants in the room um kept using this word sort of dropping it in you know uh, presumably encouraging everyone else to to use it uh, what, what 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 is this gender euphoria well it was obviously coined in opposition to gender dysphoria I mean, I suppose in some ways it's a praiseworthy attempt to take the narrative back from the description that somebody who isn't trans might have. And the idea is that as soon as you, um, you know, as soon as you acknowledge who you were really meant to be and take the steps to present that way, the feeling is going to be so fantastic. You describe it as gender euphoria. And indeed, I mean, you know, a lot of young people who do go through this say they do feel loads better which is hardly surprising. They've been saying to themselves for a while, I'm really a boy or I'm really a girl or, you know, what I want more than anything else is to cut my breasts off or whatever. Then when you do that thing, of course, you feel a great sense of relief. The question is, does it last? And detransitioners would tell you that for them anyway, it didn't, that it can last as long as a few years, which is an important point because none of the follow-ups go past that few years. And after that, you think whatever it was that was m making me miserable, it's still there getting rid of my breasts didn't get rid of my misery sort of thing. Like a bad tribal tattoo <laughs> that you've still got <laughs> from the old days. Mm, or the barbed yeah. wire. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the barbed wire, yeah. <laughs> to, to what degree is the trans movement driven by the interests and in some cases erotic desires of powerful men? I think without them it would never have taken off. I mean, we have to acknowledge that the people who push this movement most are young women. That's the group that's most uh, invested in this. They're the group who act as the sort of police force, the ones who report you to your employer and so on. People don't tend to be terribly interested in what young women want, generally speaking. So I don't think that on its own would have made them, you know, the absolute powerhouse of a movement that we see today. I think that the sort of nuclear reactor of it is the fact that there are some men for whom it's the single most important thing. Like men and their sex drives are a thing. And a man whose sex drive is totally focused on being seen as or accepted as or presenting as a woman, you know, especially if that man is, you know, maybe in his 50s, he's been very successful in business, he's maybe rich, he's he's not a man who's accustomed to saying no, we could put, him, put it like that, like other people saying no to him. Um, that man then starts to present as a woman and that means that women have to see him as a woman because it's no fun just dressing up. He's been doing that for decades probably in the privacy of his own bedroom. It's that you want to use women's spaces and you want to be accepted into women's groups, usually heterosexual men. So you have to be accepted as a lesbian, which is an awful burden on lesbians because there are probably more men like this than there are lesbians, or at least very comparable numbers. Yeah, so those men are in the position to do the thing that they want. I, I think it's very telling that if you look at what the agenda of uh, trans activist groups is, it's not really about making life better for gender dysphoric people. It's not, you know, decent research into treatments, um, long-term follow-ups, any of those things. It's gender self-identification. It's just that. That's what they push. Well, that's the thing that those men want. They want to be positioned as women in law because then it's basically impossible for women to say, no, you can't come into this space. No, you can't play in these sports. You know, no, you can't be who you say you are. Lesbians really do have to consider you on lesbian dating apps, etc. That's not much help for, you know, a miserable young woman or who, who hates her body or, you know, a gay young man who thinks that he's so effeminate that actually he'd be better as a woman or someone with internalised homophobia or any of those things. It, you know, the, the fact is that the goal of these organisations suits 
this particular group and not at all anyone else. Well, you mentioned about young women. How do we square this? Is, does this is is the sort of fervor that it's being driven by young women? Does this tie into some of those factors you said before? Is it is it mm, sort of I don't know elite or on their way to be elite uh, young women? It's a bit of a puzzle to me, but I think I have some bits of the puzzle. Um, I mean, that is the group that does tend to be most sort of moralistic and religious. You know, women are more moralistic and religious than men are generally. And also young women, especially ones who want to go on and work in knowledge industries. So not the people who are going to be working in care homes or, you know, as nursery nurses or something like that. But the ones who are going to go on to work in an HR department or go into publishing or something like that. For those women, it's actually very inconvenient if you harp on about the differences between men and women. It's just not useful for them at work. In fact, it's it's counterproductive until the moment when they need some maternity leave. And then reality does tend to hit. But between about, let's say, 16 and maybe 35, it, it's quite a fruitful pretense that you're the same as a man. Not as good as a man, because of course women are as good as men. In fact, I would say better joke. Um, it's that to be the same as a man is what you want. It's not helpful for you if people are looking around the office and thinking, she's going to go on maternity leave. Oh, nice arse. Um, I wonder when she's got her period. You know what I mean? You don't want people thinking about that at all. You'd prefer that they just think that you are exactly the same as a man. And then those are very disproportionately the people who go into, I mean, I mentioned HR for a reason. If you look at HR departments around the world and the people who are you know, pushing the latest religion, it's it's women. And then I also think there's a sort of an element of of graduate job creation about it. Like, you know, there's this idea of elite overproduction, that we're turning out too many people who think that they, they belong in the elite sphere of society, you know, people who have expectations for their earnings and their status, that we can't actually satisfy if 50 or 60% of people are going to university. So you have to create roles for yourself. We've pretty much, you know, Roughly speaking, we have solved most gross sexism and racism and homophobia. Like, obviously, these things still linger, but it's not the way it was 30 or 40 years ago in the office at all. So you've got to keep looking for new forms of discrimination, more and more um, granular control of the people in the workplace. And again, this is young women who are doing this. Like, it's, it's, it's in their interests, you know? But I just thought of the, from, from the ages of 16 to 35, that is a... Imagine that the, that is a long campaign. The reign of terror that you can have over 20 years, that's three times the seven years war. You could be like the crusade that, that you could go on for that amount of time before you had, before you got pregnant and were like, oh, oh no, like, you know. like Absolutely. I mean, yes, yeah. I mean, it is, you know, people say, sometimes, sometimes men who are caught up in this will say to me, you know, why do you women say that this is all about men and men's rights? Like, why do you say that TRAs, trans rights activists, are like MRAs, men's rights activists, when the fact is it's young women who are keenest on this? And I think it only sounds like a contradiction because both those things are definitely true. It is a men's rights activist movement and it is young women who are pushing it. So I think one of the reasons that women like me focus on the men's side of it is the people who are most aggressive and horrific about it are men. Like the young women aren't the ones who are sending me dick pics and rape threats, you know, it's, that's men. Um, and then another reason is because, you know, one of the ways in which men and women are different is the meaning of single sex spaces and the need for them. Like men, I think men, you know, men deserve privacy and dignity as well as women. Of course they do. I think men deserve single sex spaces, even just for friendship or whatever, but, you know, in particular for getting undressed and using the loo and so on. But it's not the same if a woman walks into the men's changing room as it is if a man walks into the women's changing room. So when you look at a movement to, to dissolve, and the same with sport, by the way, men don't care if women play in their sports. Uh, other way around, very much important that they don't. So if you look at the effects of gender self-ID, they are exclusively pretty much bad for women. So, you know, and, and there are goals that are incredibly helpful for um, aggressive, predatory, uh, woman-hating men as well. So, you know, so yes, it is a men's rights movement in its impact. And I think I've explained, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm leaving out bits, you know, I still feel it's unsatisfactory. Like, why are so many young women turkeys voting for Christmas? It's a bit of a mystery to me, really. You know, but the fact is they are in this state of suspended animation where... You know, it's possible to believe 
if you're not a woman who's ever been slapped, if you're not a woman who's ever been raped, if you're, you know, um, if you've managed to stay safe in a world where women aren't necessarily very safe, then it's easy to cast the women who haven't been in that situation as fools and victims. So it's funny how, you know, if you look at people who blame rape victims, a lot of them are women. You know, they'll say, um, you know, she shouldn't have been there at that time. She shouldn't have been dressed like that. She shouldn't have acted like that. She shouldn't have been drunk. All of those things are saying, I can keep myself safe. If I don't go that place dressed like that, get drunk, I won't be raped. So there's an element of casting your own fears onto the women who've been stupid enough, inverted commas, to lose, to, 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 to be victimized and keeping yourself safe mentally that way. And then, of course, you know, something happens to you and you realize that was all a fool, you know, fool's paradise. Well, I think you've hinted at this already, but from the outside looking in, some of these trans organisations, they seem more like recruitment offices rather than counselling services or, or, or mental health services. If a man is to be accepted as a woman, then he's got to convince the world that his womanhood is innate and it's something he's born with. Therefore, this guy needs the existence of trans kids to legitimize his innate womanhood. Is this the reason for the aggressive recruitment of trans kids? In a word, yes, that's exactly right. I mean, that's the thesis of part of my book, and it's also the thesis of a, um, you know, a series of books written by, you know, what are they called? Um, you know, born in the right, wrong body, and um, I'm just I'm blanking on the names of the books, but books by um, sceptical uh, physicians and therapists about this agenda, and what they say is the children are the necessary victims. So, so basically, there's there's a strange thing about this erotic nature to some men's identification as women, which is that it's disturbed if it's mentioned. So if I say, I mean, I don't know whether you guys are straight or gay, but if I say to you, whichever sexuality you are, it changes nothing. It doesn't bother you. It's just true. Like it might be, it might bother you if you're in the closet, but just generally speaking, it's not a problem to name somebody's sexuality. But if you name the sexuality of someone whose dearest fantasy is to be a member of the opposite sex, when they're in that fantasy, you ruin it. You're saying, oh, you're a man who likes pretending to be a woman. When the man is thinking to himself, I am a woman. And so you've just cre you, you've just injured somebody's narcissistic part of their personality. I'm not saying these people are necessarily narcissistic, but we all have narcissistic elements. You've just done what's called a narcissistic injury to them. And so they'd be quite vengeful. So they themselves too try to hide their motivation from themselves. And, you know, the woman inside becomes a very real person and she comes to feel like their real self. And everyone else must see that person as a real self as well. And then that's just much more comforting for everybody and much more likely that other people will go along with it. You know, imagine you're a man and you walk into your office one day and say, hi, everybody, I've been wearing my wife's knickers to masturbate for the last 30 years. I want to start wearing them every day. You're not going to get much sympathy. But if you come in and say, I've been struggling with my gender identity, I've always really been a woman. Actually, you're stunning and brave now. So, so it just gets much more acceptance from everybody if it's not sexual and it's an innate identity. But as you say, that then means that the children have to have it. Now, we know that children do not have stable gender identities in the sense that's meant in this ideology. We've known that for decades. There've now been 13 studies of different sizes in different countries, some of just boys, some of both sexes, that have followed children who say, I really am a member of the opposite sex, or I was meant to be a member of the opposite sex. And really nearly all of them stop saying that. If you just you know, give them space, give them time, don't lie to them about what's possible for uh, for transition, they will, they will, they will lose interest in transitioning and accept themselves who they are. So we know that children don't have gender identities, and yet we're insisting that they do. Well, let's let's keep the discussion with kids for for a little bit here. Uh, there's a current government policy in the state of Victoria. That's that's where Melbourne is situated. That that helps to guide schools to make reasonable steps to eliminate discrimination on the basis of sex gender and, se uh, and sexuality. Now, in this document, they have a section titled Gender Affirmation Student Support Plans. Now, I, I want to read a section of this uh, that's directly related to parents and, and bear with me because I think it's going to create some good, good discussion. So um, this is a quote. There may be circumstances in which students wish or need to undertake gender transition without the consent of their parents or carers and or without consulting medical practitioners. If no agreement can be reached between the student and the parents regarding the student's gender identity or if the parents will not consent, uh, consent to the contents of a student support plan, it will be necessary for the school to consider whether the student is a mature minor. 
If a student is considered a mature minor, they can make decisions for themselves without parental consent and should be affirmed in their gender identity at school without a family representative or carer participating in formulating the school management plan. Now, I mean, where to begin here? But perhaps let's tackle their term, mature minor. What are your thoughts on this term? So I'm not sure that this is the case in Australia, but I suspect it is, and it's certainly the case elsewhere, that thinking about what minors can consent to came from contraception and abortion. So if you were a girl of 13, 14, 15, you got pregnant and your parents were anti-abortion, we had to have a whole sort of thinking about what it meant to say that this girl was competent to make a decision herself to have an abortion. Or, you know, if you you row back a bit before the the need for an abortion, um, if she went to her doctor and said, I am having sex with my boyfriend, I want contraception, I don't want my parents to know. So that was where the thinking started, that you had to have a way of trying to decide when a minor, who normally you would talk to their parent about all such decisions, might have to be regarded as competent to make the decision themselves. And over time, that's kind of got expanded to other things. You know, until now, mostly I think in reasonable places like, you know, a child of a Jehovah's Witness who won't accept blood, tr- blood transfusions for the child, the court can decide that the child is old enough to decide that for themselves, for example. But now we're in a situation where you have children who are understood within this ideology to really have gender identities and nobody can know except themselves. And, you know, I've seen people say that we know as soon as we're born or at age two. Um, There's a very prominent American um, gender doctor called Diane Ehrensaft who was secretly recorded talking about how children as young as 18 months indicate their gender identities. And they do this if they're girls by pulling hair clips out of their hair and if they're boys by unpopping the poppers on their bodysuits to make them look like skirts. I, I mean, I think this is deranged. But anyway, we're in a world where we imagine that only the child can know their gender identity and it's a fixed element of the child. And so a parent who's refusing to let you live according to your gender identity is like the Mormon parent who's refusing, sorry, the Jehovah's Witness parent. So the parent who's not willing to let you live according to your gender identity is like the parent who is refusing to let you have a life-saving blood transfusion. And that's why it's in that, that framework. I'd row back a bit and look at this policy, which I have looked at, um, with a more bird's eye view and ask what's missing from it apart from the question of whether parents should be on board. And that's every other child. Children don't live in a vacuum, and in particular, compared with adults, they live in very closed communities. They normally go to school. So they're with a cohort of people of the same age, and they and they grow up together. And at no point in this entire document does it mention what social transition or transition in general or acceptance of gender identities would mean for any other child. And this is where I think these these policies should be amenable to legal challenge and should fall because they quite obviously trample on a whole bunch of other children's rights. So if you have a child who's a boy who says he's a girl who's, and you now have a policy that says that you must affirm him and you must allow him to use facilities for the opposite sex, you're now creating sexual harassment for the girls. You're destroying their privacy. This is not symmetric between boys and girls. So it's also sex discrimination against girls. And if you insist that people call this boy a girl and refer to him as she, her, then you are um, imposing compelled speech. And that goes against international law on freedom of speech and freedom of belief and so on and so forth. That you know, That's where I, I think it's an incredibly myopic focus on just the single child, just that one child, that special sacred child who has announced a special identity and forgetting the rights of everybody else. That's what I think people should be looking at if they want to challenge this sort of policy. Because by the way, I don't think that parents should be allowed to transition their children. It's a path that can lead to sterility. And just because a parent is okay with that, I don't think it's okay. I don't think any child should be transitioned. But what, what I think is interesting about this document it, 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 is it's up to it's up to the school, presumably the principal, or or maybe um, I don't know someone, some other educator within within the school to decide whether this person is a mature minor. I mean, it doesn't say that they will consult with you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, doc. I mean, the, the word doctor is not even featured in that in that particular uh, document. So. Um, it, it, are we okay with, with teachers determining whether someone's a mature minor? I mean, if you go back to the contraception example, the thing is we actually have thought through all these questions before. And again, I don't know the exact details of the framework in Australia or specifically in Victoria, but I think they're quite similar in most places. If you imagine you're a teacher and a 13-year-old confides in you that they're sleeping with, she's sleeping with her boyfriend, 
she has now made what's called a safeguarding disclosure to you. And you must now deal with that within the safeguarding framework in your school. Here, what you would have to do immediately is go find the safeguarding lead in the school, report this. You both document that you've had that conversation. That's a serious safeguarding risk. So you're now going to go to the head teacher as well. And the head teacher may go to the council, like the local authority, to talk about it. You've now got four people who should be trained in safeguarding who are now documenting their decision making process. And among that will be, do we talk to the parents? And the only reason you wouldn't talk to the parents is if you think that's a risk to the child. And you might know that it's a risk to the child. You might already have serious concerns about this child. But otherwise, you'd talk to the parents. If you can't talk to the parents, you're going to have to justify what you do. And that justification will include, you know, the risks to the child, um, you know, how mature that child is, you know, whether this child is mature enough to make decisions for themselves. And in the end, you may actually have to bring them and get them contraception. You know, if that person has neglectful parents or whatever, there's a whole framework for thinking about these things that this should just be slotted into. So if a child comes and says to you, I, I, I'm a boy inside, so we'll say it's a girl, I'm a boy inside. In my opinion, she's making a safeguarding disclosure. People don't come to that idea from nowhere. She's read that online or she's decided she hates having breasts or she ha hates her periods or, you know, she thinks that, you know, she doesn't ever want to have sex like the way it's, she's seen in porn or something. She's made a safeguarding disclosure. Go along the safeguarding procedure. And that'll mean naturally talking to parents unless they're a danger. Do you see what I mean? It's the exceptionalism of the way this is treated is the problem I have. Not exactly any particular element of it. It's the, it's the ring fencing of these trans-identified kids outside all the things that we know about child safeguarding, about child development, about keeping children safe in schools. But this this section this whole uh, section here on on what to do seems sort of crane lifted in like like the words they're using the there, there's no way that that just some bureaucrat or, or a collection of just your average bureaucrats who just are going to get going along to get along would come up with with this this has been um, helicoptered into them surely absolutely absolutely and it's all over the world everywhere in the English speaking world and everywhere that's um, that's culturally close to the English speaking world, like the Nordic countries or, you know, Netherlands, Germany, that sort of place, all of them. So these are the product of international or internationalized NGOs and charities, big campaigning charities like the ACLU and HRC. And here in Europe, there's a group, I think it's called ILGA, I forget what the acronym is, but it's basically a coalition of all the European LGBT. And I mean, LGBT just means T now. Uh, organizations and they do they draft model policies and model laws and then what happens is the local campaigners manage to get some traction with somebody like whether that's a state government or um, a school organization or a department of health or something like that they get some traction that there's this thing now the latest type of discrimination the latest afflicted group is trans you know, they presented in that progress narrative of we've got rid of slavery, we've got rid of, of um, you know, we've allowed women to vote, we've got rid of homophobia, and we now have gay marriage. The next thing is this, and the and the um, and then they say suicide. They say very high suicide rates. That's invented, and very dangerous thing to say as well because suicide is contagious. They say all of this, and then they say, and we have the solution. Here's the policy. And so, yeah, the same words are popping up all around the world, like intersex intersex in this document when has a school ever had to do anything about people who are intersex like is this incredibly old-fashioned term for a bunch of quite severe and very different medical disorders that are to do with the development of your genitalia and your reproductive organs if you have an intersex condition you have a medical condition it's not the school's business any more than it is other, other medical business conditions are and you're still a boy or a girl it's it's copy pasta it's just in there you know like all these things are just Intersex is in all of them. Queer and questioning is in all of them. You know, this gender expression thing. Like, why are we protecting gender expression? What does that mean? I used to have short hair, now it's long. Sometimes I wear trousers, sometimes I'm in a skirt. This doesn't need protecting, it's ridiculous. Uh, now, prominent Australian basketball player Andrew Bogut recently had his social media posts flagged for misinformation when he posted screenshots of, of these student support guidelines on Instagram. And he only had a simple heading saying, are parents okay with this? Now, he subsequently found that Instagram employs fact checkers from Melbourne's RMIT University to comb through posts like his. Uh, he, he started a bit of a name and shame campaign outing the people that do this work the photos he shared are exactly what you'd think 
uh, all the fact checkers are gender or queer studies lecturers and professors with with rainbow flags and BLM declarations in their bios, side shaves and blue hair. Uh, now, if, if promote, proponents of trans ideology really believe in what they're doing and, and, and think that they're on the right side of history, then why do they need to go to such lengths to con- conceal their ideas? Like, all this information is on a government website. Why, why are they gaslighting us? Because they know that we won't go along with, us, with, with it unless they do. There was this extraordinary document that came out a couple of years ago from a law firm called Denton's. It's a very big law firm. It's a it's a coalition of law firms all around the world, basically. So it's the biggest in terms of people in the world. And they brought out this document that I bet you they weren't actually really meant to bring out, which was a guide to how to campaign for gender self-identification in law. And it was so revealing. It said things like, um, you know, this is a very unpopular policy, so make sure that you hitch it to something much more popular. For example, in Ireland, it was hidden behind gay marriage. Um, Don't try not to get into the media, it said. Now, this is the first inverted commas civil rights movement. And I say inverted commas because it's not really. But anyway, it presents itself as one. It's the first in the history of humanity that hasn't tried to get people on side by getting the word out. Like if you think of Martin Luther King or you think of the suffragettes, everything they did was aimed at getting into the papers, getting onto the front pages, you know, getting people to hear their speeches. This is the first one. It said, keep out of the papers. Don't talk to journalists. Find yourself a few key politicians and influence them quietly. Get the law passed before anyone notices. Like they really wrote down all of that. So that's the strategy because they know that we don't like it. They think that they're right and that we're backwards and bigoted. And we've stopped thinking that you have to persuade people who disagree with you. And we started to think that you should just overrule them. And, you know, we're just, it's just, this, that's what the phrase right side of history means. Well, you might have already covered some of this, but the, but the, the mainstream media coverage of these issues is very frustrating and comedic at times. It's the omission of key details, uh, like in sex crimes, for instance, or the casual slipping in of her penis, which is, which is, which is a classic, it's legendary, that, that one. Um, they, they slip it in like it's perfectly usual. Uh, the New York Times printing an ad, uh, quote, Liana is imagining Harry Potter without its creator, close quote. Uh, this is something I, uh, and I, I, presumably the, the person was, was genderqueer or, or something like that, which, um, which I thought was one of the most mean-spirited erasures of one of the world's most successful female authors ever who's brought joy to so many people so um why do you think that the the legacy media engages in this which we've covered a little bit of and uh, more importantly are we are we doomed to live in this sort of bifurcated world forever where they say these things and we in our homes and and with our friends we don't believe them and we just have to live in that that those two worlds I mean, to answer the first bit, you know, why do the New York Times and Washington Post and the rest of the elite or legacy media, whichever way you want to describe it, why do they report on this so badly? Well, if you look at what's happened in, in those sort of mainstream outlets in the last 20 years, what's happened is the total, pretty much total loss of advertising revenue. So, you know, word for word, in, in dollar terms, you're paid less now than you were 20 or 25 years ago to write it's become a very precarious job, but it's still quite an elite job, as in it's you know quite prestigious and status-driven. So the sorts of people that I mentioned, the sorts of people who are you know churned out by universities now, they still aspire to work in the media. And then at the same time, you know, you know, papers that are trying to pivot to making a living in the new digital world have taken in a lot of young staff, like really large numbers, and they give them key jobs that they think that the older staff won't understand, possibly correctly think that, you know, on the social media team, um, you know, writing about social media, writing about trends, that sort of thing. And then they try and get rid of older people because the older people are expensive. So there's been this enormous turnover inside newsrooms in the past 10 years. And it's almost been a, it's almost been a, a, mar- a march through the institutions, you know, like you look around and if you think of things like James Bennett being fired at the New York Times, or the recent meltdown at the Washington Post. Um, I forget her name. She's a Hispanic uh, journalist who just basically spent all day every day slagging off her colleagues, saying that they were all racists. Yeah, and they and they they left her for ages. Like she had, t- they left her for two weeks, and she was just tweeting constantly about how evil everybody at the Washington Post was. It took them ages to get rid of them. These people have come in to your institution, and you know you have values that are to do 
with free speech and, you know, without fear of favor and speaking truth to power and going where the story leads you. And you've brought in people who don't have those values at all. But you didn't realize that until it's too late. And we saw that very much with the reporting around George Floyd. Yeah. So if you think of all of those, um, those New York Times journalists and all those other journalists who put, you know, the, the black fist and, you know, silence is violence and, you know, the coordinated nature of the statements that were made about James Bennett, you realize that you've just got people inside your newsroom who are not congenial at all to your values. And it's too late, actually. They're inside the door now. But they're not congenial full stop. Like, they're, 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 you know what I mean? They're rude, awful co-workers that, that I just can't believe these people uh, can all be in the same room. That you just The way that Barry Weiss was bullied sounds terrible. No, I know. Very, very true. And there was an extraordinary um, long article on The Intercept a few months ago that I keep going back and reading again. It's very long, but it's extremely enjoyable, even cathartic, if you've had any uh, contact with people like this. And it's about NGOs in Washington rather than um, the media, but it's very similar. And it's talking to loads and loads of anonymous people who run charities and NGOs. And those people say they can no longer do their job. Like nearly everything they're doing is internally focused. It's all racial reckonings and that sort of stuff inside the house and not actually focused on doing anything outside. And the bit that really struck me in this whole article, which I highly recommend anyway, there's about two thirds of the way down, there's this nugget that one of the people they talk to says, you know what, we actually haven't suffered this. And I think the reason is that a few years ago, really early in this trend to cancel people, we had a high profile cancellation person on staff and he's still here. And so nobody applies to work here who's that sort of person. So totally unintentionally, they had inoculated themselves against this whole trend. So I start to think that like people like me should actually have a sideline in doing consultancy work or going on staff for people who want to try to flush out. You know? You'll be like a scarecrow. Yeah, exactly. I think it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. money. Like if you, had, if you had me working for you, you probably wouldn't have any of these problems because everyone you would like to leave will just leave. I mean, they'll performatively complain first, but you can say, you know, there's the door. They always demand the meeting. They say, we want to, want to have this meeting that Spotify and Penguin have, you know, these meetings, these internal meetings that, that where they say, you know, your top earner, we don't want you to have them. I know, I know. I mean, there's a theory and I, don't, I only read it recently. There's this wonderful writer here called Mary Harrington, who's, who, who she's, she regards herself as a reactionary feminist. So her book is explaining to the extent to which the progress narrative has not been helpful for women. And has, you know, it's very much about the way that the denial that men and women are different ends up, you know, landing on women. It ends up in, you know, well, at the last point, surrogacy, but it goes via trans stuff. And also, you know, sending in America, you know, children going to childcare at two weeks old. We don't think about the, the fact that we're mammals and we don't think about what women are. Anyway, she says that if you look, especially in America, at when children started to go into institutional childcare in very large numbers for really almost all day. Those are the kids who are now on campus. And if you look at the way that, univer that um, universal childcare runs, like a childcare runs in this sort of, you know, you're dropped off at seven and you're picked up at seven, so 12 hours a day, five days a week, it's very safety focused. Like we tend to think about the attachment problems and that is a problem, but it's also very regimented and safety focused. You can't let the child just kind of experiment and do their own thing as they would with an adult watching them and doing their own thing as well. Everybody has to be, you know, minded at every point. And those people turn up on campus and they kind of expect to be coddled the same way. Like maybe, maybe there's something in that. You know, they do certainly seem to expect that you can smooth the path in front of them of everything. Like that if they say this offends me or this hurts me or this bothers me, that that's enough. I just always want to say, well, so what? You're offending me. You know what? We're both over it. I think we need to bring that back, don't you think? Don't we need to bring back, yeah, you're offending, you're offending me is great, but we need to bring back, I don't care, who cares? What about that old expression, um... It's a free country or the world doesn't owe you anything. All these things that I remembered and I'm, you know, I'm not super old, but I remember those things being said. And now if you said the world doesn't owe you anything to someone, they'd just be like, or the world, oh, life's not fair. If you said life's not fair, they'd go, HR, it will hear about this. I know. I, know. I mean, my father used to say that to me all the time. And it used to drive me mad. He used to say, you know, life's not fair. And I mean, I would say, and I think I still had a point, well, why are you trying to make it more unfair then? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Like, 
you know, too bad, too bad, you know. I mean, it just, it is extraordinary, really. I, th- I think that, back, you know, going back to that bizarre letter from Pips and Andy at Keys College in Cambridge, they didn't have to send any letter. They really didn't. They could just have said, you know, there's dozens of talks every night in, ca- in Cambridge colleges. Like people are forever, you know, somebody's visiting them to do some work. They just book a room in the college. They let it be known through whatever list serve it is. And, you know, six people turn up and nobody notices. They could just have done that. But if they wanted to say something, why could they not just have said, we understand this isn't everybody's cup of tea. If you disagree with her, do feel free to turn up and tell her. Um, and if you don't want to go, don't. Yeah, but then they'd say, you, you, they'd, they'd say, well, it might, obviously your cup of tea is Nazi cup of tea. And then that would be <laughs> the end of it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I wish I had a cup of tea here so I could drink a Nazi cup of tea. <laughs> At the end of the talk, like Arif said, well, people didn't want us to have this event. So obviously that means we're going to have more. And um, I was asking a stand-up comedian about this afterwards. Like, if you're a stand-up comedian, I asked him, like, can you sometimes see a joke that you really shouldn't say, but you can see yourself just going towards it and you can't stop yourself? And he was like, oh, yeah, all the time. So when Arif said that, I said, yes, the punishment lectures will continue until morale improves. (laughs) And thinking to myself, as I was saying it, you shouldn't say that, Helen, stop, stop. But anyway, so, yeah, we're just going to keep coming back. We're going to keep doing them. And have you have you heard of the concept of a narcissistic reversal? No. Okay, think of Trump. You know the way everything that Trump said, every accusation is a confession. Like everything he says other people are doing, it's because he's doing it. So that's a narcissist, one type of narcissistic reversal. So these people call me hateful and that I, they said that I was endangering them. Well, I was inside a room while people outside howled shouted, banged pots and pans, managed to get themselves into the college, started bashing on the door. You can't hear it in the recording because we were mic'd up. So the sound, you you know, but there were times that I just couldn't be heard. Somebody made a short video of one part of it on her phone and, you know, nobody could hear what I was saying at all. There was hate there. There really was. But it wasn't my side of the door. It was their side of the door. And Mm. yet they call me hateful. Every observation is a confession. Well, Helen, we're, we're very mindful of time here, and I wanted to squeeze in a, a, a quick question here. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you about drag queens. Now, I, I always thought that a drag show was a sort of grotesque parody of, of womanhood seen through the male lens. There's, there's always a sexual element to drag shows as well. Uh, I, I'm yet to see a drag performer dressed as a demure librarian, say. Uh, they're always at least 80% stripper. What's your take on Drag Queen Story Hour? I'm not a fan, is the short version. Um, I think we have to be a little bit careful thinking about drag because there is an aspect of it that is, um, you know, a deeply oppressed group, like gay men, when, you know, when that went went to have homosexual relations was a criminal offence. It it, it was, it's a sort of a, a, you know, possessing the thing that you've been described as. You know, so I, I, I'm slow to say that drag is just woman face the same way that, you know, blackface is now completely unacceptable. Do I think that we can still defend drag now that that sort of open homophobia is a thing of the past? I'm becoming less and less convinced that we can. Because, of course, you know, gay men in a world where gay sex is illegal deserve a fair amount of leeway in mocking compulsory heterosexuality. And I think a lot of what they express, you know, some of its desire to be a woman, a feeling that they should have been a woman, but also a hatred of women. Um, I mean, I have a gay son as well as a straight son, and I have a lot of gay friends, and I talk to them about this. And, you know, one gay friend said to me quite recently, he said, you have to understand how difficult it is as a teenager when you're starting to realise you're gay and all your friends are pointing at attractive women and saying, isn't she gorgeous, I'd do her type thing. And you're, you're actually disgusted because that's just not your sexuality at all. But you're scared as well that you might have to. So you're actually quite scared of women, a mixture of scared and disgusted. And hopefully you grow through that. And of course, lots of gay men, they will say all their best friends are women and that's who they hang around with. But there is this undercurrent of fear and othering of women that I think a lot of gay men haven't actually registered that it's there for them. And I see sometimes I see that coming out in drag like the describing of, you know, a drag queen who's too realistic as fishy, which is a reference to the way women are supposed to smell. Um, you know, the names that they give them, like chlamydia or, you know, 
suck them off or something. It's just, <laughs> you know, this isn't, but do you know what? It's not meant for women. It's meant for each other. It's a performance of a, inverted commas, a press group. Now, is any of that appropriate to children? I mean, absolutely not. The reason that it's put into schools, I think, like, well, the defense of it is that within queer theory, um, who knows what that means, but anyway, within it, um, anything that transgresses or blurs boundaries or that flips expectations is regarded in itself as good. So a man dressing as a woman is in itself a good thing to them. So that's their, their you know, we are doing a good thing. I think myself that the motivation for us, the true motivation for Drag Queen Story Hour is that you get parodic men dressed as women in front of children, people that the children can see perfectly well as a man, but looks like a clownish woman. And everyone's referring to this person as she, her woman's name. I think it's to disturb children's understanding of what it is to be a woman or a man at an absolutely crucial stage so that they grow up much more willing to accept obvious men who insist they're women i.e. trans women. I'm not cynical. Well, I have one last question for myself, uh, and, and that is I, w I, I would like to know, Helen, how to talk about all of this with people in the real world be without sounding like a maniac, if you, know, if you know what I mean. I heard myself talking to one of my wife's friends the other day. Um, she was just over for tea, and I, I sort of inserted myself, as, you do, as your, your boring husband does. And, you know, she's not unsympathetic to what we've been talking about totally. She's in the creative arts. But I still, I sounded unhinged. Like, and what's Because what's happening is this is weird stuff. And, like, just saying the silly, silly words you have to say out loud is, is a problem. What, what, do you have any tips? So don't say much. I think the tendency is I've got their attention now. I'll tell them all about it. I'll do the sports and I'll do the kids and they're you know, and, and like, blurt it all out and the thing is anybody would kind of do that and then the next thing is to remember you know if she's in the creative arts it's very important to her that she doesn't hear what you're saying because the moment that it lands is the moment that she might have to do something about it and that's the moment that she might lose her job can she keep working in an industry that's so captured if she fully genuinely realizes what this is doing to children in particular so she won't be ready to hear you and I, I think I'd be a bit cautious about landing things on people who, you know, for quite understandable reasons, very much need not to hear them. This sounds like I don't think that you should talk to people. I, I don't think that. I think that you should go slow. You should pick a couple of things. You should remember nobody changes their mind because of new information, not straight away. Especially not from me. We all make up our own minds. <laughs> <laughs> but anybody, I mean... You know, like there's a, there is research on how to change people's minds and it's done it's done a bit at a time. Like nobody flips totally. Like if somebody says to you, oh, I flipped totally when I heard that thing, it's because they were already on that journey. They'd already heard a lot of things. So I would just pick what you think are a few killer points. And I think most people can grasp sport and they can grasp the foolishness of getting children to make irreversible medical changes. I think... Amazingly, I would have thought that putting rapists into women's jails should be in there. It turns out people don't give a shit about women in prison. They don't give a shit about prisoners anyway. So, you know, I'm, 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 being, I'm being pragmatic here. Leave that one out. I think I'd just say a few sentences and then it's always best if you can ask that person what they think because people are more likely to believe words that come out of their own mouth. So if you can say, um, you know, did you see that Leah Thomas thing? I have to say I didn't think that was at all fair. What do you think? You know, and, they, and you know, then they can say, well, I don't know what you're talking about or, well, it's only a few or whatever, and then drop it really quite quickly. Or you can say, I am genuinely worried when I see children locked into these irreversible, irreversible medical pathways. And then possibly the person will say to you, oh, there's nothing irreversible done for children, but there is. So you can say, well, that's not what I've seen. It really does seem that they are doing mastectomies on kids under 16. You know, I don't think they should be doing that. And then just drop it. Move on. Leave that person to that's think. That's the part I can't get right. Can't get the drop it, but part. I just, I just go. Maybe they haven't heard enough. Maybe they need to hear about, you know, all the books I've read. No, no, no. You after two things or possibly three, you're mm. only making it less likely they'll listen, not more. So just, just give them a copy of this podcast. Uh, well, Helen, you've you've been so generous with your time. With your time, we, we have a short question we ask all our guests, and that's that is, we'd like to know what you're reading right now. Oh, and um, what am I reading now? Um, Elena Ferranti's book. 
that a friend gave me. I'm going to have to look up the name of it. Um, my dear friend, my something friend. Oh, yeah, that's uh, my brilliant my, friend. My brilliant friend. Something. So a friend of mine who was staying, an incredibly brilliant friend of mine who was staying, mentioned it. And then it turned up in the post yesterday or the day before. And I was like, oh, I don't think I ordered this, did I? So I think it was from her. <laughs> and I haven't got around to emailing her and saying thank you. But yes, it's great. So big recommendation because basically 99% of my reading is exclusively on the question of gender these days. And it does squeeze out other things. So it's nice to be reading a novel. Oh, that's great. My, my wife has friends that, that, that just send her books like that. So nice. John, John when are you going to send me a book? Um, I believe you, you sent me Matt Walsh's children's book uh, recently <laughs> oh, that's right, to read to my child, The Walrus jo one. Johnny the walrus, the walrus, yeah. Which, which you know, <laughs> oh, we've had to hide somewhere so it doesn't get, you know. Anyway, um, <laughs> Helen, where can people find you online? So I have a website, thehelenjoyce.com. And that's where I do my own uh, independent journalism these days. So I have a newsletter that I put there. Um, if people want to support me or if people want to read what I do, that's where it is. And it's also where I have a list of all the podcasts and interviews that I've done. So I will be adding you shortly. Oh, thank you. And uh, everyone needs to check out the interview you did with Jordan Peterson. Over a million views. Legendary. It's, it's, it was like watching... I don't know, a John Woo film or something. It was just like balletic, <laughs> like, you know, minds going, at, you know. I, I was truly, truly uh, stunned by, by how articulate you, bo you both are. Oh, that's really nice to say so. Thank you. It was the hottest day in, that London has ever seen that we recorded it. And of course, you have to turn off all fans and aircon and so on. And, you know, we had studio lights and things. I was here in London in a, a house that's been converted for use for exactly this sort of thing. And there were sound and so on. And every, you know, 15, 20 minutes, they would stop. And they literally had these cold pack things in the freezer. And they were bringing them out and putting them on my <laughs> circulation points. to try. Wow. But they weren't getting them. The poor sods who were doing the sound. Ricky, we've got to get this Daily Wire um, <laughs> yes. cash up in here. <laughs> That's yeah, I know. Mean. It's the one and only time that I've... Because I have a decent setup at home. I have a decent mic. I have decent lighting. I have an Ethernet. And I said all of them. They're like, no, absolutely not. No, uh, so I have to trek to this house in London. Well, everyone needs to check it out. Um, thanks very much, Helen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.